So listen, we're in a series called Talk is Cheap, out of the book of James, and uh, it might just be me, but I find the book of James uh, annoying (laughs) to me, and frustrating, and uh, irritating, actually. Uh, I don't know who was here last week. Or heard the message from last Sunday. Um, Pastor Bill spoke out of the first chapter of James, and uh, he encouraged us to keep track of all of the times that we had angry outbursts uh, throughout the week. And I, before I even got home, was pretty sure uh, I was going right to hell. Um, before I even got home from church. So it's been a really encouraging uh, series for me. Um, And hopefully we can just keep that annoying streak going this morning as we dig into chapter two. But do you know what I mean? There's times when you're just like, and it's not because the book's bad, it's because it's exposing stuff in my life that I'd really rather not change because it's hard to do. Anyone ever identify with that when you're going through the Bible? So we're going to read through this chapter 2 today, and we're going to kind of go through it a little bit verse by verse and just pull a few things out of it. Just before we get there, there's a a few kind of macro-level thoughts that I just wanted to give you on the book of James that, for me, I feel are helpful as I'm approaching this book. So the first thing is this. Um, This is a letter to family. It's a letter to family, the entire book of James. Uh, Throughout the book, and in chapter 2 specifically, you're going to find that James addresses his audience as brothers and sisters. That's a family term. And that means that it's not a letter that was written to people outside of the church. It was a letter that was written to people inside of the church. People who would say, yeah, I'm part of the body of Christ. I'm following Jesus. I made a decision to pattern my life after him. I made a decision to be a part of his church. So that means that if you're here today and that's a decision that you've made, everything in this book applies to you. Written to family. It's not written to people who who haven't chosen to follow Jesus. It's written to people who have chosen to follow Jesus. It puts the responsibility on us. The second thing is that James was a pastor. He he pastored the early church in Jerusalem. That church faced enormous persecution and was scattered throughout the region, and this, this letter was written to people in that church, but it was written from a pastor's heart. So what you'll find here is that James is dealing with real issues that he saw in the church. He he didn't write this book in order to just go, well, I guess I've got some extra papyrus here. I should probably fill something in there. These were real issues that he saw in the church And they were significant enough that he took the time to put pen to paper and write down some correction. It's a bad pastor who doesn't correct the people under their care. Uh, Have you ever been corrected by Pastor Bill before? So Pastor Bill has a heart of a pastor, like really uh, very few other people that I know. He encompasses what it means and looks like to be a pastor. So if you've ever been corrected by Pastor Bill, 
Sometimes you don't even know that it happened. But then you realize, oh, actually, I think I just got corrected. <laughs> but that's, that's what we read here. It's not James being angry at you. It's not James condemning you. It's James correcting the church and sub- subsequently correcting us because he's got a pastor's heart. And he sees things that either short-term or long-term are going to destroy people. And he's correcting them. That's helpful to know because sometimes, like for me, I found um, through this series the first two weeks that maybe I don't like getting corrected right now in my life. Uh, My sister overly agreed from the back corner. So I struggled with it, but I have to remind myself that this is healthy correction to receive. The last little macro thought, and I should probably say this at the end, it would be a better ender, but it's really helpful to keep in mind is that um, no matter how we may want to complicate the book of James, or make it this big, intense thing where, well, what does it mean in the original Greek? And we're pouring over commentaries and trying to find some big, deep, heavy, new thing that nobody's ever seen in the book. Every single one of us will end up at the same spot where we're having to reconcile the current state of our lives with the higher level that James is calling us to. So what I'm trying to say is, um, this isn't just a book to study and become a master. Oh, I've memorized all of the chapters of James, and I can go into all the history and the original Greek. and None of that matters if you don't actually go, okay, God, what are you saying to me? What do I need to change In my life, we don't just want to read this. Well, you can't read this book of James and not sense the conviction and correction of God. So that means that this morning, um, not because of how eloquently I'm going to speak, but because of the potency of what James is saying, you will be forced to a decision point this morning. And I'm just giving you fair warning ahead of time because I've read chapter 2 already several times. (laughs) So here's the thing, though. Knowing that that's coming, you have a choice to either turn off your heart and your soul and your emotions and shut something down and say, I'm not changing, or you can go, God, What do you want to correct? What do you want to shift in my life this morning? And that's the choice that you have to make for yourself. Okay, let's get into chapter 2. Chapter 2 challenges us with two questions. One that starts in the first verse, and we'll start there and If you have your Bible or it's on your mobile device, um, pull it up. Try and engage here. I'm going to have the scripture up on the screens as well. but, But dig in for yourself and go, God, what are you saying to me this morning? It's almost annoyingly simple what James is saying in this section. So let's start. Verse 1 of James chapter 2. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? As I said, James is a pastor, he's a straight shooter, and he cuts right through 
to the issue. He's saying, how, how, can, how can we profess to follow Jesus and then live differently than how Jesus lived? How can we profess to be following the teachings of Jesus and show favoritism towards a person or a group of people and discriminate against another? Now, do we know the answer to this question, right? It's up on the screen. Well, no, we can't discriminate against other people and claim to follow Jesus. It's a fairly obvious point that James is making. We're called to treat everyone regardless of differences, and that's part of the beauty that you see in the early church, especially there's people from different backgrounds, and they came together under the one unifying factor that is Jesus. Let's go on as James fills this out a little bit more. Verse 2 starts, For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? So did you get the picture here? Put yourself right here in church. A rich person comes in, and they're ushered to a place of honor or a place at the front, and then think about how awful it would be if there's another person dressed in dirty clothes, and they say, I think there's some room in the foyer where you could sit on the floor. This is a picture that we relate to. It's a picture that the early church would have easily related to. There's always been this contrast throughout history of rich and poor. And this would have been a real issue in that early church as well. How would you feel if you were the person that's told, have a seat on the floor? heard a story recently of a church that was by a college campus and uh, it was an older church right across the street from a university and uh, church was kind of everyone in it was older but they're right next to a campus with young people in it and they were praying God we pray that people would come to know Jesus and find Jesus, and they were dressed in nice suits and dresses and did everything right and how they were supposed to in a church. And, and they're praying this prayer, and every Sunday it's kind of the same group gathering. And then one Sunday, uh, a weird hippie kid, it was in the 70s, comes in from this university, long hair, Birkenstocks, Probably a weird tie-dyed shirt, weird dreadlocks that maybe just happened naturally from a lack of, yeah, but a complete opposite to the folks that were in this church and walked in and, and, and broke kind of the order of how things were supposed to be and came and sat right down cross-legged the front of the church got a little tense and looked around and thought, this is a bit strange. Other people thought, well, this 
I mean, he should be dressed a little nicer. He, how, why is he sitting on the floor? And one of the older gentlemen in the church got up from where he sat every Sunday and started walking up the aisle. And you could feel the tension kind of increase as people went, oh, no, what's going to happen? As he got to the front of the aisle, older gentleman, some mobility issues, with great difficulty, got down on the floor and sat next to this kid. Sat there for the whole service with him. Well, the next Sunday, five more students from the university came. And the church began to turn around as more and more young people began to find Christ. And it, and it was something that they'd prayed for, but this one older gentleman said, I'm going where this person is. I'm not expecting them. I'm not shunning them because they're different than me or different than the mold that they're supposed to fit. And instead of, of moving the person, he actually turned this front into a place where this young man had an encounter with God. This is the contrast that we're seeing to what James is saying, where a person's moved away, moved aside. Now, in this section, though, James uses the words, for example. For example, and then he gives the illustration of a poor person and a rich person. But this for example opens it up for really any area that we ourselves could find a reason for division or a reason for separation or a reason to discriminate against somebody. And as I read through this book of James, I'm looking at this and I'm challenged about my attitude and my heart and my motives towards the poor. But it's even broader than that. What are those things in, in recent years we've seen such a strange polarization that can happen in our culture. And James is going, even on those lines, we can't treat people differently because they're different than us. So for you specifically, what's your for example that God would point to in your life? What kind of person might walk into this gathering and you say, no, I would never be friends with that person? No, 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 I can't talk to that person. They hire a new person at work, and have you ever gone, oh, I I'm, I'm, can just tell I'm going to just hate this person. Thankfully, it hasn't happened here. <laughs> but that would be more my issue, James is telling me, than the other person. But think about it, right? James is making this pretty clear. Do we discriminate, discriminate against other people because they're different? Do we show favoritism? And even with this example that he gives, right, it's easy, and, and James even points to it, where we have suspect motives in dealing with people. You think, well, if I show some favoritism to somebody with a bit of money, then maybe a bit of that money flows to me. I'm going to butter this person up so that when we go for lunch, they go, hey, listen, I've got that check. And then you go, thank you, God, I'm blessed. Meanwhile, um, you've been violating commands in Scripture to get there. Let's keep going. Verse 5. It says, Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom? He promised to those who love him. But you dishonor the poor. 
Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? A few things here. Uh, The more that you read through Scripture, the more you realize that God has a huge heart for the poor. The, The first chapter of James, it's one of the last verses that talks about what true religion is. And how you treat the poor is, is a huge reflection of what's happening on the inside of you. There's uh, two people at, in this church that I th- think are amazing examples for me in this area. One is, is Tasha Brown. Always kind. We had barbecues this summer, and there would be just folks that would show up we didn't know. And Tasha would make a point to connect. And Valerie as well, I think she's ushering today. Great examples of folks that have a heart for the poor and those in need. And um, if your attitude towards the poor is, oh, can you move off the sidewalk? It's less about that person and more about what it exposes in you And God's heart is always for the poor. That didn't change from Old Testament to New Testament. It didn't stop at the cross. His heart has always been for the poor. Let's keep going. Verse 8 says, Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal laws as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of the laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone, but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So this is kind of an interesting section to include here. And and essentially what James is getting at is that um, you can't cherry pick which parts of the law you'd like to obey. So, no, I have a heart. I have a heart for people but not these people. He's saying, no, we can't go, well, I've done 99, I've followed 99% of your commandments. And he's going, what about this one? Yeah, yeah, but we're talking about the 99 that I've gotten right. And he'll still come back to pointing to these things. We can't cherry pick what we'd like to obey and what we'd like to listen to. And even as we keep going through James, we can't go, no, I don't really want to work on that area. Because God will always bring you right back to those things. And then in this last section of of the first question, verse 12, he says, so whatever you say or whatever you do, remember you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. So that's a significant one and a theme that you find out all through Scripture. How we treat others, how we act towards others, how we judge others is the same measure that God will pour out on us. So that's a big case for making sure that you live every day of your life with a whole ton of mercy, knowing that you're in need of that same mercy every single day. If you're not merciful, you won't be shown mercy. That's the first question we could probably stop there. And in this next week, God would be able to point to things going, how come you're treating that person different than this person? 
How can you have lots of love for this people group, but maybe not this other people group? But there's still another half to the, first, uh, to the second chapter of James. We're going to go through this. He starts with a second question in verse 14. He says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? So again, James gets right to the point. The series is called Talk is Cheap for a reason. We could make all sorts of claims, but at some point, our actions actually need to line up with our words or how much are our words worth? If I told you that I had this big dream, very inspiring dream, I want to climb to the top of Mount Everest. That's my goal. Yet every time you see me, I'm just hanging around eating donuts and watching Netflix. And five years later, you said to me, how's that whole uh, Everest thing going? Yeah, still a big dream, still a big goal for me. Eventually, you'll go, this guys he's not even going to climb Nose Hill <laughs> at, the, at the current pace. At some point, action actually has to support words, or they're not really worth very much. And that's the second question that James brings up for us. You, you can find this in, in church every Sunday. But I'll let James bring that up. So verse 15. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Um, I've heard it said uh, people go to some distant place and they want to preach the gospel and lead people to Jesus. And there's this saying that's been around for generations, I'm sure, where uh, the person that they're preaching to says, I can't hear you because my stomach's growling so loud. I can't hear your words. And at that point, we can offer people all sorts of, of great encouragement. But James is saying at some point, your actions actually need to back up your words. One thing I've been incredibly encouraged by, just last week, we had two bins up here for some hygiene and food supplies for a, a Calgary Board of Education school called Discovering Choices. And uh, those boxes are getting full just off people who've come by this week. And what that tells me is that in this church, when we become aware of a need, man, people are ready to give and want to be involved. They don't want it to be, oh, that sounds tragic. Oh, I feel so bad for those kids. If only they had something to eat. I'll pray that God multiplies loaves and fishes. Meanwhile, you've got a Burger King Whopper meal just hanging out for yourself. But again here, James, James uses the term, suppose you see someone. Again, he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm setting this up as for example, like he did before. So when we read it that way, all of a sudden we start going, so what other areas just beyond how I 
treat a person in need does this start to apply to? Um, it's things like, uh, God, I believe that you're a healer. And a person comes up to you and says, they're limping, and you say, what's wrong? And you go, well, my foot turned 180 degrees. <laughs> and you go, oh, okay, yeah. And in your head, you're going, I believe God's a healer. And then you just walk away. Well, do you believe he's a healer? Because then wouldn't you pray and ask God to heal? Um, It's things like, um, God, I believe you're my provider. My God has the cattle on a thousand hills. And then somebody gets up and talks about tithing or giving, and you go, oh, no, I'm, no, I'm good. Okay, well, does he provide or no? Can you trust him with your money or no? At some point, your faith is going to get tested by how you actually live. And just so you know, tithing, People think when a preacher brings it up that they're trying to just get money, right? I've watched televangelists. God bless them. But what tithing exposes is actually your level of trust in God more than anything. And it's not helpful if you're a person who doesn't want to tithe to hear that But it's tough to say that I trust God with the eternal destination of my soul if I can't trust him with my wallet. At some point, isn't the faith thing going to get tested? Also, even times in church that, um, that in worship, I'm so thankful that Jesus saved me. And then you just see people like, Maybe they kind of sing along. And you can just see that thankfulness oozing out of them during worship, right? Did he, did he touch you? Did he change you? Would anyone know? Can anyone tell? It's this challenge that we, we face. Things like forgiveness. Oh, God, I'm so thankful that you forgave me. And then you hold a grudge and bitterness towards other people. Well, at some point, if you're so thankful for who Jesus is, couldn't you begin to offer the same forgiveness to other people? At some point, your faith's going to have to be backed up with some action. Your words can't be empty words. Um, I love Pastor Shan brought this up one time where he's had this thing where he's just going, man, I'm, I'm going to pray now. So he, he told me about a lady, oh, some weird skin stuff happening. And there was part of him that wanted to say, well, uh, yeah, I'll be praying for you. And then he went, nope, nope. Can I pray for you now? And all of a sudden, beyond just the skin condition, this lady instantly wells up in tears and says, yes, pours out. And all of a sudden, God had an opportunity to move because he didn't put faith on hold. He turned faith into real action, something tangible. He didn't walk away and say, I'll pray that you get a coat because it's snowing out. He actually engaged faith with what he could do. I'm just going to read through the, the rest of this pretty quick, but you, can, you, you get the picture of what he's saying in this second question in James chapter 2. He's going, come on. This can't just be talk. Now, uh, some people will say, well, so is this like we have to work our way to show God that, you know, we, we believe in what he's saying or work for our own salvation. And 
That sounds different than what Paul taught throughout the rest of the New Testament. And that's not what James is, is getting at. He's, he's, he's calling us to say, listen, this faith that you profess has to produce a return. At some point, it's got to come out in your life. It's not about earning or working to please God. We're made right through faith. And James is going, so the natural outworking is somebody's got to see it. And uh, we'll, we'll skip ahead a little bit, Kalen, but you can read the rest of it, but he talks about Abraham, and he talks about Rahab, the end of that chapter. Abraham being someone that we call the father of faith because he was shown to be right by God because of his actions, by he actually put his trust in God. Rahab was a prostitute, and she was listed here and in other sections and is known for her faith because she helped some uh, Israelite spies escape from Jericho. She put faith into action. It didn't just stay at words. So listen, one of the things that I find difficult with James is that we would agree, yeah, we can't discriminate against people. We'd also agree, well, yeah, we need to see faith at some point, right? At some point, it needs to affect how I actually live beyond just what I say. Um, but it kind of feels a little bit like uh, flossing, right? You go to the dentist, and he's like, you should be flossing. And then you go, yeah, I know I should be flossing. And then you floss like three times a year, and you feel bad. You're like, oh, I know better. But it's hard to sometimes, like, how do I start doing this? How do I actually engage with it? And um, what's fascinating in this second chapter of James is that you find that he quotes Deuteronomy 19.18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the best pictures that we find in, in my belief in the scriptures is a, a parable that Jesus tells uh, about the Good Samaritan. And um, it, it starts because a, a, a religious teacher comes to Jesus trying to trap him and test him, and he says, you know, what must I do to be saved and, and inherit eternal life and and Jesus says, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And, and this guy says, well, you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, well, yeah, do that and you'll live. And then this man says, well, okay, so who is my neighbor? And I'll give you the condensed version of this story of the Good Samaritan, but it's, it's one that's familiar. It's a Sunday school classic. Well, actually, I'll read it quick. Luke 10, verse 30. It says, Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was tra traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Now, this is where it gets interesting, and I want you to watch for some parallels here with James 2. Verse 31 says, by chance, a priest came along, a priest. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A, a temple assistant a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, and did you catch it said despised Samaritan? That's a rough word to include. This despised Samaritan goes over to him and soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. 
The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So a few parallels here. Um, who in this story do you think would have had the most biblical knowledge? A priest, followed by temple assistant, right? These would be people that would be deep steeped in church culture. They would know the laws. <sighs> But they knew the laws, but then what did they actually do? Well, nothing. They did nothing. If you were watching this scene and he wasn't wearing a weird, funky hat, and he just walked by looking like an average guy, you'd go, I don't know, he could be a plumber. He could uh, work at the deli counter. There was nothing in their lives externally that showed anything of the knowledge that they had on the inside. This is this picture of, of they would profess that they had faith, but it didn't come through in action. And my heart, well, for myself, but also for you in this church, is that we wouldn't be people that your neighbor sees you leave every Sunday for church and when your neighbor's in need, you do nothing. What's it worth if we've been coming to church for years and at no point does it ever come out to the world around us? At some point it has to, otherwise we are that Pharisee that walked by. The other parallel, this despised Samaritan, it's in there, would have had every justifiable reason to not help this Jewish man. The Jews hated them. They called them half-breeds. They said, these people, they pretend to follow the same God as us. They don't. They hated them so intensely. So this, this Samaritan would have walked by well, could have walked by, and nobody would have gone, oh, you're so unloving. His own family probably would have been like, yeah, that's fine. After what these people have said about us, done to us, there's no reason that you should have to. But the example that Jesus gives is that he did it anyway. It was inconvenient. It wasn't easy, but that was his neighbor, and that's what was the right thing to do. We can always have a reason to go, I'm not helping that person, and we can justify it very easily. And then we'd still end up, right? Like, what if the priest got, he's going to a service, what if white robe, right? This guy's all bloody, and what if he gets dirty? Well, he can't. If I was up here and I had a big meatball stain on my shirt, you'd probably be thinking, well, it sounds like an okay message, but you couldn't have picked a better shirt. We can have justifiable reasons for not loving a neighbor. But it wouldn't be just going against what James is saying. It would be going against the very teachings of Jesus himself. So, Moira, if you could come to the keys. Um, Pastor Bill gave us that annoying question last week of keep track of your anger and your outbursts. Um, I've hidden my own record. <laughs> so here's my annoying question for you ahead of this week. Do I love my neighbor 
And how would anyone know? Do I love my neighbor? And how would anyone know? Do I love my neighbor? And how would anyone know? Do I love my neighbor? And how would anyone know? I'll say it one more time in case you didn't get the question. Do I love my neighbor? And how would anyone know? And I realize I've just annoyed myself for this week ahead. Because now God's going to point to those moments and those situations. And he's going to challenge me. Probably before I even get home. But this James series, as I already said, I don't want this to end with us having a greater knowledge of the book of James. I don't want it to end with people going, oh, Pastor Bill really hit it out of the park on that fourth week, that message. Oh, so good. And three months later, you say, well, what was that message about? How has it changed you? I don't know, but it was pretty good. I would rather us like take one verse from James and like work so hard to just get one verse in us. It would be more value than going through chapters and all of this. So I've struggled with how to kind of wrap the service up because so much of this will be lived out this week. Right? But as James said, it starts with a motive in our hearts. And we've got these seven things that we're going after this year. People have said it seems a bit basic. It seems a bit simple. Uh, four of these things you can't do without people in your life. And when it comes to James, it's all about connect. Find somebody to connect with. Find somebody that you can serve. Find an area that you can give. Invite a friend to church. Very practical. And I think this morning there's just two things that I'd like to do. And the first is if you're here and something in this second chapter of James resonated with you or you say, okay, yeah, I've got some growth to do in this book in the next week. In a moment, I'll get you to stand. And all that means you aren't telling people what it is that you're needing to grow in, but it puts you in a spot where you're actually saying, yeah, I'm going to not go, yeah, I, I actually should love my neighbor more. But you're actually going to stand up, which is an action, saying, this is going to be my first step of, of faith. And it's a, it, it, it's a step of faith in the direction that Jesus is leading the direction that he's calling us to align our lives to. But you might also be here and you've never followed Jesus. And um, we want to give opportunity for you as well if that's you. You're here and you're saying, I hear about this guy, Jesus. I hear about how he lives. And I want my life to turn from the direction it has been going and I want to follow Jesus. In a moment, I'll get you to stand as well. We're going to pray. And that's that first step of faith in your relationship with God. But I want you to take a moment right now and just reflect and go, God, okay, what are you saying to me this morning? What area are you pointing to? What's maybe something that I need to shift or change? Maybe I'm guilty of being more words than action. Maybe you can think of a person you show favoritism or discriminate against. 
take a moment. I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond. God, I pray uh, that we wouldn't be hearers of your word, but we would be doers of your word. Father, I pray that James wouldn't just be something that we agree with, enjoy, cheer for, or pay lip service to, but God, I pray that this would be a book that changes the fabric of our church, that shifts not what it looks like on Sunday alone, but God, what it looks like on a Tuesday and a Wednesday. So God, I'm inviting you to come and bring your conviction on your church this morning. That God, you'd point to those areas where our hearts have gotten hard, that you'd point to those areas where it's about a resistance to your leading. God, that you'd point to those areas where um, either consciously or subconsciously, we've closed the gate and said, no, actually, Holy Spirit, you're not welcome here. Plenty of other places you can go, but not here. So, Father, I'm asking that you'd speak to your church this morning. So, listen, if you're here and, and you've got an area that, yeah, you're going this week, God's pointed this out and I need to grow in, why don't you go ahead and stand right now? Make a, make a, a public statement that, yeah, I need to shift, I need to change something. And just so you don't feel pressure, you are held accountable for it, too. If God's pointed to something, realize that you're not just standing because somebody else is standing. And the second group, if you're here and you're saying, I actually need to make a commitment and a decision to follow Jesus, why don't you go ahead and stand and make that first step this week I need to step out okay let me pray one more time just for those that are standing in church if you're sitting why don't you join me and we're just going to pray that God would help God would change things, that God would shift things. So Father, we thank you for your conviction. And Father, I'm praying that this week, as we choose to follow your leading, that God, you'd help us. The Holy Spirit, you'd empower us and strengthen us. That God, from this Sunday to next Sunday, we would look even one degree more like Jesus. That you'd shift our hearts, shift our motives. Shift our actions one degree closer to Jesus. That James wouldn't be a book that falls on deaf ears. But God, that it would be a life change that happens where we come out the other side looking more refined by your purifying fire and more like Jesus. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for this time and we thank you for your word. Pray that you bless your church this week. You prosper your church this week, and we would grow more like Jesus this week. In your name, amen.